Well, tonight we are going to endeavor to cover a large amount of text in a short time. We're going to start at Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, and God willing, finish both this chapter and the next chapter. And the next chapter is 55 verses. So that's 74 verses we're going to try to cover tonight, and I think we can do it without getting obscene on the amount of time we spend on it. Uh, We will not read every single verse. This is one of those nights where we won't read every single verse. I do encourage you to read the entire passage, maybe later tonight, before you go to bed or or whatever. But uh, there will be some summarizing as we walk through this, and it'll be just a walk through it. But we will see the big picture, we will see the point, or the, the points of the passage, and how it all fits into Genesis, how it all fits into how God is revealing Himself, and and working in history through people to accomplish His will, His purposes, and we will see all that. And I think we can break down this text in three ways. First, we're going to see that God prospers Jacob. Then we're going to see that God delivers Jacob. And finally, third, we're going to see that God gives peace to Jacob. So first, God prospers Jacob. Now, to understand that, let's set the context once again. We pick up here... In Genesis 30:25, and Jacob has been in Haran, in the in the region of Paddan Aram, for 14 years. He has worked for Laban, his uncle, uh, and over that time he has gained four wives: the two daughters of Laban, Leah and Rachel, and then of course their maids Zilpah and Bilhah. And as we saw last Wednesday evening, 11 sons thus far, the last being Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel. And we know that by now he has at least one daughter by the name of Dinah. So we begin in in verses 25 and 26, and let's just go ahead and read those, just to kind of get us going here. And it says, Now it came about when Rachel had borne Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me depart, for you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. So Jacob is ready to go home. Jacob is ready to go back to his own country, ostensibly to to see the family he hasn't seen. We have no uh, hint in the scriptures that for these 14 years, no contact whatsoever, as far as we know, between him and his father Isaac, his mother Rebekah. Um, no, no word. Just kind of how we we saw how we didn't have any evidence that Rebecca had any contact with her family for almost a hundred years until Jacob went to Laban's, and we don't have any idea here that there was any contact there either. But we do know that God had promised Jacob, and we saw this when we were looking at that dream with the the ladder to heaven that God had promised Jacob that he would make it back to the the promised land. He would make it back to Canaan, the land he promised Abraham and Isaac. Jacob knew that's where he belonged. But not so fast, says Laban in verse 27. Uh, See, the past 14 years had been very good for Laban. And he knew it. And he knew why they had been very good. Because of Jacob and more precisely because of the God of Jacob. Um, Yahweh had blessed Jacob, and and Laban had been blessed because Jacob had been near him, and Laban had divined that, we see in verse 27. 
And by the way, the fact that it says he divined it is an important detail because it, it leads us to understand that Laban was engaging in pagan religious practices. The, the sin of divination, of trying to divine knowledge through means other than God, is an Old Testament word, divination is an Old Testament word that we see that talks about this, this spiritual practice of these false religions. And this tells us that he was engaging in that kind of thing. Not that it would take a genius or any kind of special insight to see what was going on here. It was evident to everybody that God was blessing Jacob. Um, like others in the past, like if you were near Abraham, you were blessed. Pharaoh was blessed because Abraham was in, near him. Abimelech was blessed because Abraham was around him. And, and we see that with regards to Abraham. If you're near the one God's blessing, you're going to be blessed. Isaac, the same way. So Laban had prospered for these 14 years by being in proximity to Jacob. And so, of course, he doesn't want Jacob to leave for that reason. And so he's willing to make some accommodations so that Jacob will stay. And, and seeing as Laban made out so well, the last time Jacob named his terms for a deal, seven years and give me Rachel, um, in verse 28 he says, Name me your wages and I will give it. You know, he, so he, he's prepared. You know, in other words, it's like that old used car joke, you know, what do I have to do to get you into this Ford Pinto today? You know, what, what do I have to do for you to stay? Laban was convinced that no matter what kind of deal he made with Jacob, he was going to make out well in the end because that's how he'd been living for the past 14 years, high on the hog, so to speak. And Jacob, for his part, seemed hesitant. Hesitant at first to make a deal with Laban because for all this time, he's been working for Laban and not building a foundation for his own household. Yes, he has wives. Yes, he has children. But he's been the employee while Laban's been the one getting rich. And, and Jacob is ready to break out now for himself. And he's not a, a young man by any stretch of the imagination. But he, what he's done, he's seen his grandfather Abraham become a very wealthy man. He's seen his father Isaac become a very wealthy man. But here he is an employee and kind of a, he's serving Laban for these 14 years for his wives. Um, and so Jacob knows Laban has been the beneficiary of all this. Verse 30, he actually says, The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? So Laban's thinking is, I'm going to pay him off. You know, he'll probably ask for some kind of money. I'll pay him off. Buy Jacob off. But Jacob's had enough of that. And, and so instead, Jacob suggests something that's unique in, in here. And he suggests a division of the flocks in verse 31. Um, basically, and I'm not going to, to read all through this, but basically what it amounts to is that Jacob would take any sheep that had speckles or spots. He would take any lamb that was black. He would take any goat that had speckled or, had, uh, speckled or spots. Uh, and the thought here is that Jacob would get the less desirable animals while Laban would keep the more desirable animals. Um, and if Laban found at any time that there were animals that looked like they should belong to him, in, in other words, not the solid colors, then he would take them. And, and Jacob was willing to do this, and, and Laban, he thinks this is a great deal. And so he says, good, let it be according to your word. And, 
So he's made out well dealing with Jacob before, and he figures he's going to make out well again. So the deal's made. And Laban, not Jacob, but Laban goes through and separates the flocks. It's as if he doesn't even trust Jacob to do that. And Laban puts the best of his animals into a separate flock, and he gives those animals to his sons and sends them three days away to keep them separate from all these other animals that are going to be around him, including Jacob's flocks. So Laban is, is taking great pains here to make sure he doesn't get messed up in this deal. Now it's very important that you realize that Laban's going to these lengths to make sure his flocks don't get mixed up or rather the best of his flocks don't get mixed up with the rest of the animals. There are still going to be some of Laban's animals around, and Jacob's going to shepherd those animals, plus all these new flocks that will be Jacob's, the ones that are spotted and speckled and whatnot. And that's where things get a little weird in this passage, because verse 37, it's odd to our Western sensibilities, our 21st century sensibilities, because Jacob does something a little odd. He takes these uh, rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peels white stripes in them, okay? What he does then is he he sticks them in the water, he sticks them to where the animals are going to come and drink, he sticks them where they're going to mate, and then look beginning in verse 39 at what happens. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble... He did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I understand 100% what's going on here. That would be a lie if I told you I knew for sure 100% what's going on here because I don't. I do have a preferred interpretation as to what's going on here. Um, And I'll get to that in a moment. But first I want to tell you what a majority of the commentaries I read on this say. I don't agree with this, but I, I do want to be fair and tell you since I myself am not sure. And it's that Jacob engaged in some superstition here. That, that he, uh, if a person, an ancient superstition was that if a person or an animal were to look at something, at the moment a conception was taking place while they were looking at it, there would be an imprint upon the, the being that was being conceived. In other words, the offspring, as it was being conceived, would have this imprint of what was going on here. The thought here is that the animals would see the peeled rods, this, this, these peeled white stripes on a dark background, and then they would be more likely to bring forth speckled or spotted or striped offspring. Okay, And, and actually, that's what several of the commentaries that I, I read point to that that Jacob was kind of superstitious here and a little bit faithless and they might be right but I'm not there I can't go there because I don't see anything in the text to lead me to believe that that's why he did this that's what happened here Jacob 
Instead, the, what, as I understand this text, is that here is an experienced shepherd. Jacob has, has been tending flocks of sheep and goats and whatnot for many years now. Back home with Isaac and now 14 years with Laban. Okay? And 14 plus years at this point because we're into the time now in between. So he knows these animals. He knows the land. He's seen them reproduce. He's observed over the course of time how all of these flocks are, and he's been tending to Laban's flocks too. So Jacob does this. He also has the stronger animals reproduce with one another in his flocks, something he doesn't do for Laban. And it's not presented as a deception or an attempt to hurt Laban as much as it shows Jacob's wisdom and intent on succeeding in shepherding. What I think this is saying, you know, Jacob takes these less desirable sheep and with the wisdom of, of, of experience, wisdom God gave him, he trusts God to provide and to fulfill his promise of blessing. And that's exactly what God does. If you look at verse 43, So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. So Jacob took the lesser desirable animals and God blessed him and he became an exceedingly wealthy man. Just like his father, just like his grandfather. Through wise shepherding, through selective breeding, Jacob prospered. And verse 43 makes clear that it's God who is sovereign over this, really, because he, he, he starts out weak and he becomes very strong. So God prospered Jacob. In chapter 31, though, we begin to see that God delivered Jacob because Jacob's success irked Laban. It didn't just irk Laban, it irked the sons of Laban. We see in these first few verses, they began grumbling because <coughs> Jacob was increasing... And Laban was decreasing, to use some New Testament terminology there. Jacob is the one who's blessed. Jacob is the one who's faithful. Jacob is the one who's prospering, while Laban, Laban is not interested in the God of Jacob as much as he is interested in the blessings he received because of the God of Jacob. And so he begins to decrease, to dissipate, to the point that Laban's sons begin to accuse Jacob of taking away everything that belonged to their father. It was personal to them because that's their inheritance, okay? They're seeing their inheritance drift away, like like putting money in a stock market and watching it kind of just kind of pitter away instead of grow. And so he Jacob hears what they're saying. He sees that Laban is not as friendly to him as he used to be. And so it's at this point that God speaks to Jacob again in verse 3. He says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob, as we began this passage, Jacob was saying, Send me on my way. I want to go home. And now God is telling Jacob, It's time for you to go. God is ready to fulfill the promise to bring Jacob home. God is going to deliver Jacob from the trouble that's beginning to brew in Laban's house. So Jacob, you know, whenever you're about to make a big decision, if you're married, you should talk about it, about it with your 
wife, and in his case, he's got multiple wives, and so that was quite the conversation, I'm sure. But he, he begins to explain these things to Leah and Rachel, and in the beginning in verse 6, he reminds them of how he, he has treated Laban with integrity, and I know we're moving fast, so just kind of follow along with me. Uh, he begins to, 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 to remind them of how he's treated Laban with integrity, and yet Laban has changed his wages ten times. And I don't believe that's talking about the ten times during those 14 years that he was serving for the, for the daughters. I think what that is indicating is that Laban kept seeing Jacob prosper and he would change the deal however he saw Jacob prospering. In other words, if Laban began to say, well, all the striped ones are yours, then they would all come forth striped. In fact, that's what we see in the verses, verse 8 and following there. If, if they were all striped, if Laban said all the striped were Jacob's, then they would all produce striped offspring. If they all the speckled were Jacob's, they'd all come out speckled. And so what that does is it really shows that it was God at work here. It, Jacob was wise. Jacob used his experience to his advantage. But it was God that brought him success. It was God that brought this to pass. It was clearly God at work here. And we see more... Uh, of that, more of what God said to Jacob as he, he's recounting this to his wives in verse 11 and following, God speaks to him in a dream again. He, he tells about this dream. God meets him like he did at Bethel. God identifies himself, verse 13, as the God of Bethel. And he reminds Jacob of the commitment that Jacob made. And if you recall the commitment that Jacob made back at Bethel, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I do not know it. And then, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. So Jacob has said, because God has promised to do these things, I, 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 I trust the Lord. And God had kept his promise all except for the bringing him home part, and he's in the process of doing that here. And so Jacob is, is going to be faithful here. And, and the wives, they, they recognize that their husband is right. Um, they recognize that God has given what was their father's to Jacob. So you know they have nothing to do with their father anymore anyway is the sense. Look at verse 15. Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and has in also entirely consumed our purchase price. They had grown to really resent their father's treachery and how he gave them to Jacob, and, and how their father had dealt with their husband for all of these years. Leah and Rachel really had, had turned and, and lost respect for their father. So in verse 17, we begin to see this. What happens? Then Jacob arose... And put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he gathered in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's, and Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of 
Gilead. Now, there are a couple things here I want to point out. First, we see what seems to be some serious spiritual immaturity and faithlessness on the part of Rachel. And it's such that you might even begin to wonder if she trusted in the God of Jacob at all to still her father's household idols, why would she do such a thing? I mean, you're not supposed to be messing with idols to begin with. And so, yeah, that, that's a question that hangs out there. What, was it an act of someone who really doesn't believe in the Lord, or is it someone who is, is wrestling with uh, the world at the same time she's professing to believe in Christ? You know, many Christians today, many who profess Christ today, I, I should probably say it that way, many who profess Christ today still struggle with separating from the world. Um, and, and, and in those situations, God only knows whether or not their salvation is real. But um, she steals her father's gods or his idols. And it might seem to me maturity, but there is another possible explanation for what she did here. And it does merit our consideration because it's gotten me thinking as I've, I've been thinking through this and it's that there is some external evidence, and when I say external evidence, I mean evidence that's not in the Bible, um, that indicates that in, in these cultures, these small idol figures were somehow connected to guaranteeing the right of an inheritance. To, 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 they were somehow connected to the property rights of an owner. Don't ask me why. I, well, I didn't live then. I, I don't know why, but... There is evidence to suggest this, that having them had to do with some sort of official recognition to a right of property. And so if, if, if that is the case, Rachel may have been taking them for the purpose of somehow guaranteeing her husband's right to the property he had acquired from Laban. That's one possibility. It's a valid explanation for what is a puzzling series of events. It may not be the case, but it does give some credence as to why Laban is so passionate about getting those little idols back because he's going to end up going after them, as we, we probably know already. But there, there's a second thing before we get to that. Notice in verse, where was it? 20. For some time now, we've been seeing the name of Laban. Laban, Laban. But here in verse 20... Laban the Aramean. We never read Leah the Aramean. We never read Rachel the Aramean. But now this seems intentional. Why would it be intentional? To show that Aram is where Laban belongs. Jacob does not belong in Aram. For that matter, Leah does not, no longer belongs in Aram. Rachel no longer belongs in Aram. So Jacob and his household and his flocks hit the road. And yet yeah, Laban comes after him. Seven days it takes, but he catches up with him. And Laban has bad intentions on his mind. Jacob has left without notice. He's taken his daughters. He's taken his grandchildren. And in Laban's mind, he's still burning up because he's a lot poorer than he used to be. And Jacob is a lot richer than he used to be. But, but Laban comes after him, and before he can do anything, God speaks to Laban. There are times in Scripture where God will speak directly to unbelievers 
as a means of interceding on behalf of those who are His. We see that in Exodus with the the, the prophet Balaam, who wants to prophesy bad against Israel. God ends up speaking to him through the mouth of a donkey. Okay, um, but but here's another one of these situations, and he says, "Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad." And so Laban has been told this by God. He comes to Jacob. You can imagine it's a tense atmosphere. You can imagine a lot of uneasiness in in the room or the tent or wherever it was. Jacob has to be wondering what Laban and his sons and his men might try to pull off. But really, also Jacob has the promise of God on his side. And we see that strength begin to develop throughout their encounter. How late, look how Laban speaks to Jacob in verse 26. What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? He says that and then he goes on to give what, what amounts to this hypocritical song and dance. He, he fakes concern for Jacob. He fakes concern for um, the daughters. He whines over you know, not being able to tell them goodbye, not being able to kiss them. He boasts over how I have the ability to do you harm. Uh, although you know he's already heard from God, so he probably knows in the back of his head he's not going to be successful in trying to do Jacob harm. Still, he's all talk about how he was in the it was in his power to hurt Jacob, but uh, you know he's not going to do that because of what God said. Well, Jacob answers back to Laban. He left without word for this very reason because you might try to prevent me. You might try to harm me if I do it. He might try to take his wives. Laban might try to take Jacob's wives, his daughters, by force, which is an understandable concern on the part of Jacob. But as far as Laban's idols were concerned, Jacob didn't know a thing about that. And it really grated on him the thought that someone in his household might have taken something from Laban's household because Jacob has gone out of his way not to steal from Laban, so to speak, but to work within the parameters of their mutually agreed arrangements to prosper in life. So Jacob says, you find your idols, whoever takes them is, is dead. They're as good as dead. And of course, Jacob doesn't know it's Rachel. But uh, Laban, he goes into Leah's tent. He doesn't find them there. He goes into the maid's tents. Zilpah and Bilhah, he doesn't find them there. And finally, he goes to Rachel's tent. And she hides the idols in the camel's saddle, and then she sits on it. And she says in verse 35, Let my Lord not be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So in other words, she does something other women have done many times since. I'm halfway joking. She uses her menstrual cycle as an excuse. <laughs> Getting the evil eye over here, and I knew I would. Uh, nah, just, just, you know, that's out there. You gotta, if you don't, you're gonna swing and miss, or you're gonna hit it, and... I guess I probably swung and missed. Anyway, um, I'm not a comedian. That's why I don't do jokes, folks. I'm not a comedian. Um, <laughs> I'll hear about that later. Uh, anyway, verse 36. How, look at how Jacob responds because Laban doesn't find him. You know, he, he doesn't search under Rachel. The, 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 the little excuse works. Um, let's look at 32 or 36 through 42. 
Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. So the shoe's on the other foot now a little bit. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, and he rendered judgment last night. So Jacob doesn't know it's Rachel. And it's understandable then why he loses his temper here. The, the, the pot, he's had enough. You know? <laughs> enough, Laban, enough over these 20 years now. He, he can only stay quiet for so long. And finally, being accused of theft is a bridge too far. He wants to know, why have you hotly pursued me? What have I done to you for these 20 years? You know, when, when there were losses on animals, he... Jacob bore the loss, even though he's the employee in this relationship. Jacob, when, when things were stolen, it, it came out of Jacob's pocket, not Laban's. Uh, he worked hard in the heat. He slept in the cold. He, he put in his time for his two wives, and his wages changed repeatedly. If anyone should be mad here, it should be Jacob, because Laban's the one who has been changing their deal, you know, altering the negotiations. Um, and Jacob appeals to God here in this last verse. If it wasn't for God, I'd be empty-handed, but he has seen me through this. God has seen my affliction. He rendered judgment. The God of Abraham, who had led Abraham away from Haran in the first place, the God of his father served with reverential fear. God had caused Jacob to prosper. Now God has delivered Jacob from Laban. Now God's going to give peace to Jacob, beginning in verse 43. God gives peace to Jacob. Let's look at that. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Right, really? Um, but, but what can I do this day to these daughters or to the, their children whom they have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Jacob called it Jagar Sahadutha, but J Jacob called it Galid. Let's stop there. Notice that J Laban doesn't attempt to refute anything Jacob says about the last 20 years. Because he can't. Jacob's telling the truth here. Jacob has lied in the past to get his way, but as for right now, he's telling the truth, and Laban cannot, he can't fight that. Uh, there was no reason to because Jacob was right. So instead, look at what Laban, he kind of brushes it off. You know, uh, 
he he could never do anything to his daughter. You know, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. Um, Jacob's cattle came from Laban's. So how could he do Jacob harm? He's kind of, I wasn't really going to do you harm, Jacob. I, I love all y'all. You're my... That's kind of the thought here. He's being very double-minded. He's being very disingenuous through all this. But now it's because he knows he can't win. He's lost this, and now he's trying to save face as best he can. He's uh, not going to win a battle. <laughs> Here's a lesson. He's not going to win a battle against somebody being protected by God. Um, so instead of repenting, he uh, ultimately seeks what is best for himself. He doesn't admit guilt. He's not about to admit guilt. So he decides to save face with a covenant. And Jacob, he's being delivered by God. He doesn't want to do Laban harm. He's eager to make a covenant. It reminds me of Romans 12, 19, I believe it is. As far as long as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Laban wants to make a covenant, I'll make a covenant. And so he has his kinsmen, his sons, Jacob does, gather stones because a, a covenant should have a pillar to commemorate it. Laban calls it Jegar Sahadatha, which is Aramaic for the heap of testimony. Jacob calls it Galid, which is Hebrew, for the heap of witness, um, which shows you the difference between the two. Laban is from Aram, and while the Hebrew people will long be familiar with the Aramaic language, Jacob is speaking Hebrew here. He belongs not in Aram, but in Canaan. Well, starting in verse 48, we see about this covenant... The pillar is erected, and after the pillar is erected, Laban decides to impose some terms on the covenant. So he, he implies that Jacob's not to be trusted. What, what's the covenant? What are the terms? Don't do anything to hurt my daughters. Don't take any more wives, or God will judge between the two of us. In the meantime, Laban calls the pillar Mizpah, which means watchtower. So what, what, the, what that saying is, that the pillar would serve as kind of a boundary between Jacob's territory and Laban's territory. Even though we're talking about hundreds of miles here, so it's not like they owned all of the space. But Laban wouldn't cross over this pillar to harm Jacob. Jacob is not going to cross over to harm Laban. Not that he had sought to harm him anyway. And then Laban closes in verse 53 with some audaciousness. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. There is more to this than meets the eye in most of our English translations, okay? And I want to take a second to <clears throat> try to explain it. Um, first, he invokes the God of Abraham. Who is that? That's, that's Yahweh, right? He uses the, Greek, or the Hebrew word Elohim for the, the God. Elohim means God. And then he uses the same word for the God of Nahor, Laban's father. But what's probably being, and, and there are English translations, some of them carry the sense of this and some of them don't. Um, the God of Nahor, what's probably being referred to is a different God than Yahweh. Um, Laban's gods were probably the gods of his father Nahor. And the Hebrew word is plural there. Elohim is plural, remember. Because when we see the word Elohim, the word God, in reference to the one true God in the Old Testament, that's the, the Hebrew word Elohim, 
the fact that it's plural, remember, and we've talked about this before in here, it speaks to the fact that God is one God, but He exists in more than one person. It speaks to the plurality of God. There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's something that isn't spelled out particularly in the Old Testament, but it is implied all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, and so when we see the word Elohim in reference to the one true God, it reminds us of that. But when we see the word used in reference to other gods, it's talking about plural gods, false gods. And so the point I'm trying to make is it's very likely here that when it says the God of Nahor, that should be a little g. Gods of Nahor it's not talking about the same God of Abraham, but the gods of Nahor, the gods of Nahor's father as well. And at this point, remember that Nahor's brother was who? It was Abraham. Their father was Terah, if you recall. And I'm not going to go back and, and recount this, but if you, it, it's been a while since we were in Genesis 11. But when we were there, we saw something that toward the end of Terah's life, he seemed to drift away from worshiping Yahweh only, and he, he added a bunch of other gods to the way he worshiped. We talked about that then. I'm not going to recount all of that now. But Laban's statement here seems to indicate that, that Nahor's father Terah had multiple gods, Yahweh, who Abraham worshiped, and then these other gods that Nahor and thus Laban worshiped. Laban then seems to be trying to invoke all of these gods, Yahweh and all of these other gods, to judge between he and Jacob. Uh, like Again, like many who profess Christ today, Laban is not interested in the God of Jacob. He just wants to be blessed by the God of Jacob. Um, and then as for Jacob, look at the end of 53. Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, meaning his heart was toward God. Laban is invoking all of these false gods, but Jacob swore his end of the covenant on Yahweh alone, on the fear of Isaac, the, the God Isaac feared. So the last two verses, 54 and 55. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the mill, and they ate the mill and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them, then Laban departed and returned to his place. Note that his place. He belongs at his place. Uh, but Jacob, he, he spends the night sacrificing. They have the meal. Laban leaves the next morning. That's the last we'll hear of him. But now we come to a real transition in Jacob's life because now he has moved on from Haran. 20 years he spent there. 20 years of Laban in his life. He left Esau and got Laban. Now he's left Laban and he's going to have to deal with Esau again as we're going to see in chapter 32. Uh, but just as God was with Jacob for those 20 years, we're going to continue to see God bear witness to himself. God is a God who keeps his promises. He prospered Jacob. He delivered Jacob. He gave peace to Jacob. And just as God prospers us, and He doesn't promise us earthly prosperity, but a place reserved for us in the heavenly places. He gives us His Spirit right now, if we believe we have His Spirit. Just as God prospers us, God delivers us, 
from the pre- from the penalty of sin, and one day we know He'll deliver us from the presence of sin. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, therefore having been justified by faith, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace through peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have peace. God gives us peace too. So, the episode of Jacob versus Laban, when we look at it through the grand lens of Scripture, it shows you and me tonight that just as how, just how God resolved their conflict, God will resolve our conflict with Himself, through Himself, through His Son, Jesus Christ. God prospers us, God delivers us, God makes peace for us, just like He did with Jacob. And so thanks be to God tonight. Because what we continue to see in Genesis is a God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises. And it can't get more important than that. We thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. You are under no obligation to make promises to us. But in Your grace, You do. And in Your mercy, You don't turn aside from those promises but even when we have sinned, you have provided for the, the resolution to our sin, for the forgiveness of our sins through your Son, Jesus Christ, who endured the conflict of the cross that we might have the promise of glory. Jacob was by no means perfect, Father, but you chose him, you blessed him, and he stands as an object lesson to us. He's the father of, of the twelve tribes, And he stands as an object lesson to us of a God who saves sinners in spite of themselves. So may, Father, we remember that you have promised to prosper us, that you do deliver us, and that you do make peace for us through your Son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.